and welcome everyone. I'm Lauren Foster and this is Take 15. My guest today is Marco Papic. Marco is Chief Political Strategist and Senior Vice President at BCA Research. He launched BCA's geopolitical or GPS service, which blends BCA's macroeconomic research with geopolitical methodology. Welcome, Marco. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, let's start with a check-in on populism. So globally speaking, is it on the upswing, the downswing, moving sideways? I think it's definitely clear that it's on the upswing. Uh, in Europe, we have uh, non-centrist parties, if we can call them that, uh, so neither center-left or center-right. Uh, they're now about 18-20% of all seats in the Euro area parliaments. And then, of course, uh, we've had some uh, interesting successes for populists um, in emerging markets, both in Mexico and Brazil with the elections. So it's definitely on the upswing. So something you said, we had a conversation a few days ago, and you said that Europe has, quote, shock absorbers against populism. What do you mean by that? Right. So that's what's interesting. While the upswing in populism is clearly an empirical trend that we can just see in the data, the reality is that not all countries are experiencing the same effects of the rise in populism. So in Europe, um, this, the sort of social shock absorbers against some of the most pernicious sides of populism, the most pernicious policy outcomes, are the very expensive, very onerous um, social welfare state. So um, because of that, the income inequality is not as um, pronounced in continental Europe. And so while populist parties are rising in their, um, in their sort of seats in parliament, the reality is that in policy outcomes, they're not really having that much of an effect. Whereas where I think the biggest marginal effect of populism will be seen is in the places where they don't have those kind of social shock absorbers. So that's whether it's an Anglo-Saxon world, the United Kingdom, the United States, or the emerging markets. Interesting. So we're having our conversation uh, in Paris. We're here for the European uh, Investment Conference. So let's talk about the EU bloc. It's contending with what some say is a trifecta of problems. Uh, first, a nasty divorce with Britain. Uh, second, rising authoritarianism in Hungary and elsewhere. And third, a potential showdown with the populist government in Italy. So is the situation in Europe uh, as dire as it seems? And, and what about Italy? So I would say no. I, I would say that uh, the situation is not dire. Um, perhaps not at all, in fact. I, I mean, Brexit uh, situation is actually quite interesting. Um, Brexit is uh, very uncertain and it's not clear how it's going to turn out, but not because of the EU-UK problems. It's really about the UK and the fact that the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom is tearing itself apart yet again on the issue of Europe. Uh, this is the third time I think it's happened. And uh, so that's the first issue. And actually, that's a great PR exercise for Brussels because what Brussels can turn to, to countries like Italy or Hungary or Poland, is take note of Brexit. Here's a country the fifth largest economy in the world, an island, a nuclear power, uh, with its own currency, and yet even the United Kingdom cannot leave without volatility, uncertainty, consternation, and domestic crisis. So that's the first issue. The second issue is, um, you know, we have um, the Italian, of course, a populist government that's in power. I would say that uh, they are mostly constrained by the bond market, by the fact that the Italian bond, uh, the BTPs are one of the largest bond market in the world. Um, and that really constrains Italian policymakers because the largest holders of these bonds are their own banks. 
who are not really uh, doing a great job. They still have very high levels of NPLs, of non-performing loans. And the BTP holdings are their biggest buffer against insolvency. So if they lose value, uh, there's of course a question of solvency for the entire financial system of Italy. And that brings us to the question of whether the leadership in Italy is genuinely populist. And I just don't think that's the case. I think so that- you think they're bluffing? I think they are definitely bluffing, especially Lega. Uh, Lega, formerly known as Lega Nord, is not a populist party. I mean, they have some populist elements, of course, uh, but they have actually run many of the regions in northern Italy, which are very um, wealthy, very industrial. And so they have connections with the business leaders in northern Italy. And so they are not looking to, uh, to cause you know, a, a large part of their constituency um, a lot of pain, if you will. And so that's why I think that you will see, ultimately, Italy uh, come to some sort of an agreement. Most likely outcome of this uh, problem is going to be that Italy will be punished. It will enter the excessive deficit procedure, which simply means that the European Commission will allow them to miss their targets in 2019 with the knowledge that they will then address that over the next three years. Um, is this important? The answer is no. 23 EU member states were part of the excessive deficit procedure just four years ago. So that's the, that's the thing. And, and, and the final point you made was about, uh, you know, sort of rise of illiberalism. I wouldn't call it authoritarianism. I would call it illiberalism in Central and Eastern Europe, Hungary, Poland, and so on. Um, I don't think that's really investment relevant. And the reason for that is that these countries ultimately don't really have a choice. Uh, I mean, they, they do have a choice. It's between Russia and Europe. And if you talk to anyone in Poland, Hungary, or Czech Republic, uh, that's not really a choice. And that's why I think that as soon as uh, the leadership race in Germany is over, you will see a much more aggressive uh, Paris and Berlin when it comes to dealing with Poland and Hungary. Uh, Poland has already sniffed this out, which is why the ruling uh, government has actually started to amend some of their court, uh, some of their uh, justice reform. They're, they're, they, they know what's coming, and what's coming is a pretty severe um, opposition from core Europe against some of the illiberal moves they've taken. Interesting. So sticking with the Eurozone, what do you think is the biggest threat to the single market in the next five years? I think in the next five years, the biggest threat is a recession and what it will produce uh, after the recession. So um, uh, Italy remains a, a real question mark here. Uh, the unemployment level is still um, quite elevated despite uh, some improvements in the economy. And I think the issue here is that Italy is really facing a low growth problem. It's a decade-long problem. If there's another recession, if unemployment goes up, if the budget um, responds to this with uh, social uh, stabilizers, um, I think that's a problem that will exacerbate the debt levels in a place like Italy. Uh, so it's how does Europe deal with the next recession that I think is the biggest uh, question. And that's why 2019 is a very important year. Not because there's a global recession coming, or a European one for that matter. We don't think there is at BCA Research, but it's not because of that. It's because it's, it might be the last period of a lull before we start getting closer to the end of this cycle globally. And that means Europeans really need to start working on three things. One is uh, strengthening the European um, stability mechanism, the ESM, uh, turning it into the IMF of Europe, which will require probably more capitalization. Two, uh, the banking union needs to be completed, strengthened, and it has to include a deposit union. This is very important because the deposit union will be um, a backdoor fiscal union in a way, because it means if there's a, you know, a problem with the banking system in Italy, German savers and taxpayers will support the Italian banking system. 
That's very important, and it's, it's, it's something that Europeans do. And then some form of a common European budget, which actually uh, Berlin is not opposed to. And that's why the December um, CDU leadership conference in Hamburg is so critical. We need to see who replaces Merkel as the next CDU uh, president uh, and potentially the next chancellor. And if it's uh, someone like Friedrich Mertz, who is uh, very conservative, right-wing, especially on immigration, but quite Europhile and everything else, that would be an interesting combination that could actually see a lot of positives happen over the next 12 months. Interesting. Let's turn briefly to global issues. Uh, what worries you right now? Well, I think the biggest risk is uh, what's going on with China and the U.S. So that's, that's clear. And we get a lot of questions from clients on this uh, from around the world. And I, I don't think it's going to get better. I don't have much hope for the upcoming G20 summit. Uh, of course, that might get me in trouble if there is an agreement. And we're, we're airing this later. But, uh, but that's, hey, that's, that's part of the job. I, I think that um, I don't see an interest for President Trump to make a deal. Nobody's demanding a deal in America. I hear a lot from clients because we're in the financial industry. I hear this idea that you know, Walmart shoppers will rise up and revolt against the trade war. That's not going to happen. And it's certainly not going to happen in the next 12 months. So uh, the issue is we just had a midterm election in America. And uh, the Democrats threw everything at President Trump and the Republicans, including the kitchen sink. And one thing they did not talk about at any point was the trade war. Very interesting. You can't find me a single candidate on the Democratic Party side that actually opposed what President Trump is doing. And that's fascinating to me because it tells me that even with all the, uh, all the problems you have with polarization in America, there is genuine bipartisanship when it comes to uh, being tough on China. So I don't see a reason why President Trump would actually make a deal this quickly. Uh, so that's an issue that I think will get worse in 2019. And the flip side of that is whether Chinese policymakers will stimulate domestically. And we don't think they will. We think that they are already stimulating, but it's on the margin. It's not sufficient. And um, the combination of a trade war and lackluster policy response in China could be very, very negative for global risk assets in 2019, by which I mean emerging markets in particular. Well, let's stick with Donald Trump. And elections, uh, 2020 is not so far away. Uh, will he be re-elected? Well, he is the incumbent. So by that, just by that reality, he is um, the favorite. You know, he is the favorite to win the election as an incumbent. Now, two things. One, uh, his victory against Hillary Clinton was very, very narrow. And it really focused on the Midwest states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, where he won by very small margin. So he needs to uh, really take heed of the fact that his Republican counterparts lost 10 out of 12 statewide races in the Midwest. It's a terrible result. Um, so that's the first issue. Um, and the second issue is, uh, so it depends who basically runs against him. And second is recession. One thing that, uh, that investors should take home from the 2020 election is that no American president has ever, ever defeated a recession. <laughs> in the electoral campaign. So if there is a recession between 2019 and 2020, I can tell you with 100% certainty that President Trump will not be the president for the next four years. And that's, I mean, I'm pretty sure he knows this, which is why I think that um, this, this issue of a recession will really dominate US policy, which means that a compromise with Democrats on infrastructure spending to avoid a 2020 stimulus cliff, which is what I would call it, is likely. Which means that being tough on Iran, 
which was one of the biggest risks that I talked to clients about for the next 12 months. That's actually not big of a risk because generating higher oil prices um, in 2019 ahead of the primaries in January makes no sense. It could cause a recession. And finally, I think investors should get used to him continuously criticizing the Fed uh, for its uh, hiking policy because he will be completely consumed with this question of avoiding uh, a recession in late 2019, 2020. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that's going to be the most investment relevant um, facet of the upcoming election. So final question, uh, looking at 2019, what should investors be thinking about in terms of geopolitical risk? For 2019, I think uh, uh, the number one issue is the trade war. Does it get worse? Uh, we think yes. We think that there is potentially more downside for global risk assets because of that, more upside for the dollar. Trade war has uh, been generally very supportive of the dollar. The second question is not very geopolitical, but it's very policy related. Uh, I think the most important issue in 2018 was policy divergence between the US and China. So US stimulated at a time that China did not. This has stretched the dollar as America has outperformed the rest of the world. The question for 2019 is, does this continue? And I think it will. I don't think Chinese policymakers will really, they won't step on the gas pedal. They might ease off of the brake, which they've already started doing this summer, but we don't think that they're gonna accelerate um, the way they have done in the past, like 2015 stimulus, 2012 stimulus, when you saw this huge irrigation style credit uh, stimulus. So if that doesn't happen, I think that in 2019, the big risk for investors becomes their global exposure, their emerging market exposure, because if there's still this policy divergence, dollar goes up, yields go up in the US, uh, whereas China is not supporting demand uh, for um, emerging markets. And then the third issue, I think, is what happens with Iran. I think that's going to be a, a big question. Uh, again, I think that the risks have, are, are somewhat lower now that we know that President Trump is so focused on domestic politics, but we could be wrong. And these exceptions that he's passed to oil embargo do expire in six months' time. So by May, you could have a situation where he does apply maximum pressure on Iran, um, supporting oil prices considerably. And the final issue from a European perspective, if I can just give you a fourth one, um, it's not so much a 2019 story, but I really do think that this is going to be a pivotal year for Europe to set in, in place, or at least set in motion, some of the key reforms that uh, will make Europe less, uh, more resistant, sorry, more resistant uh, to future populism after a recession. But they need to start doing that today. And if they waste any more time, then that's going to be a problem. So watch for some uh, policy action in Europe on some of these key reform uh, prospects on the banking union, on the stability mechanism fund, and also on potentially a budget. Watch for that to happen after the May European Parliament elections. Fascinating. Thank you, Marco, so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for listening. If you want to subscribe, you can now uh, find us at iHeartRadio, in addition to iTunes and our CFA Institute member app. Thank you for listening. Copyright 2019, all rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.